We say good morning. I trust we are ready for the Word of God. As we already have been preparing for that. This is called an example of a righteous man of effective prayer. And uh, James has been emphasizing prayer um, throughout his whole epistle, actually. He elaborates on this. I, I think he makes uh, prayer uh, as uh, an extreme importance as he uh, writes this. And matter of fact, I think you will see more about prayer than any other New Testament book in this James. This, uh, this book here has like 14 verses that are devoted to prayer or principles of prayer. And I think actually everything is related to it all the way through it. Uh, this old camel knees as they call him. Uh, this is a, uh, actually dealing with prayer. It's about 15% of the book itself. So uh, other doctrines and other, other thoughts there. But he is stressing a sense of urgency. Have you ever felt a sense of urgency in your life? And of course, it was about the state of the church at that time. It was about the state of the church in that world at that time. And the persecution that was coming and was to come. Of course, we have seen our nation slide right into the gutter of secular humanism and, and sidekick gross immorality. And uh, as, as you think about that, we, we are no longer uh, a nation whose God is Lord. Um, even though you have thousands of believers in this nation and we have on our coins still yet, and I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but it says, in God we trust. I uh, tend to think that that probably won't last too much longer. But um, even though it's still there, um, this nation is worshiping at the altar of a modern Baal. Uh, it's a Baal worship with a strange mixture of idols, and that consists of, in our nation and the Western world, materialism and secularism, ecumenicalism, and mysticism, and all the isms and schisms. And most people today, even if they believe in God, He is not a real issue in life. He is not relevant. And a large portion of our population doesn't even believe in any kind of absolutes. Many people who profess to be Christians don't believe that the Bible is absolute or it's to be the authority. These are people who profess to be Christians. Though confessing some have some kind of faith in God, they can still have a, a practical atheism about it. So what is so desperately needed in our society that we live in today are men and women who, like Elijah, can have an Elijah impact on the society. That's what this society needs. That's what this nation needs. Elijah was used by God to turn hearts of people back to the Lord. But what was so special about this man? Well, really, he was a, a man just like us. A person just like us. He had the same kind of feelings. Same kind of uh, emotions, passions. And uh, James goes on to show that what made him effective in the day that he lived in, in those days of Elijah, in the days of spiritual and moral decadence and depravity that so existed, what made a difference was his prayer life. This one man and his prayer life made an impact on that nation. So what an example that James is going to use as we look in our passage today about Elijah. 
And he's going to demonstrate that the effect of prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It really does. And you might remember in his day, Israel had descended into uh, the slime pits, decadence, wickedness, depravity. We can identify with that. We can think of who was leading at the time. King Ahab, and even worse, Queen Jezebel. You, you ever see anybody or any ladies with the name of Jezebel anymore? <laughs> wonder why that is. It's interesting, isn't it? That um, they were sold into wickedness. They were sold into worldliness. That was at the time of Elijah. And that day Elijah stood up kind of stood up by himself and took on the world, took on the nation. He was a fearless man of God. This Elijah, one man against the whole nation. But he was a man of prayer. And that but, he was a man of prayer, is huge, isn't it? I mean, he was in contact with God. He knew God's will. Do you want a pattern for your prayer life? Do you want to effectively change your life and increase the effectiveness of how your prayer life can be, the impact that you can make, do you really want that to happen? Do you believe it can happen? I know all of you can believe that, but do you really want it to happen in in your life? It may cost you a bit. But do you really want that to happen? You should, right? And that's really what James is putting forth to his people that he's writing to. And 2,000 years later, he's impressing upon us, dead men still speak (laughs) through the Word of God. Because it's the living Word of God. And so we want that to happen. Let's stand. Turn to chapter 5. We're right at the end of James. We're going to pick it up at the end of verse 16. It says, uh, matter of fact, top of 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. Sky poured rain. The earth produced its fruit. Why? Would a man ever pray that it would not rain for three and a half years? You ever heard of such a thing? You always hear the other thing, that you pray for rain. Well, we're going to look at that today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word, Your truth, Your Holy Spirit. Help us to glean some truths, some cordials out of this passage that James has written for us today. And may Your Spirit make an impact on our lives right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're people who like power. I like power. I like power. <laughs> power. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, this is one of the most interesting Greek sentences to be found in the Bible. Commentators like this. There's some power words here, they're all power words. I love power words. Energizing words. You take that Greek word where it says uh, at the end of verse 16, 
the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Um, we get into what we were talking about last week, energizing, energeo. There's also the word palu, much. Of course, it's related to our English word, poly, much, many, right? Palu is much. That means there's going to be results and it's going to be big. Next word is iskue, is powerful. It is prevailing, the prevailing prayer. It's powerful. It is able. It's a, it's a key power term there. Another word uh, in there is prayer. Deasis. I'm pretty well giving you almost every word in, in, there, in, the, in the Greek. But if you look in the Greek dictionary and you say, I don't know Greek. Well, it's okay. It's fine. That's what we're here for. We'll just pick this up a little bit. It means prayer. Okay. Deasis. The word dikau, you might have heard of that word before, it means righteous. A righteous man. One who's not only saved, but one who is walking righteously. And then that next word is energy. Energy. Energizing in its effectiveness. It's effective. It works. The energetic, passionate prayer of godly people have the power to accomplish much. That's a different translation. But that's really what it's saying, the saying the same thing. The energetic, passionate prayer of godly people have the power to accomplish much. You like that? This is not just an upbeat speech here, right? You know, trying to get the players get going at halftime. What we're talking about here's what James is saying. He says, This can happen to you. The Greek says it very strong. Very strong. It's, it's an emphatic position here. It's the energetic prayer of a righteous man. God brings heavy power to lives through prayer. When, you, when you're praying for people and you really mean it, and you're really going after it, God's power works on those people. You ever, you ever notice that? Have you seen it? And we're not always talking timing-wise. Don't judge it by that. Remember, God is eternal. But the prayer is mighty in what it is able to do. Of course, we know it's God's work in there, but that kind of prayer is able to do mighty things. That's, that's what we're being told there at the end of verse 16. Say, I don't get it. I just haven't seen that kind of power. Well, We'll, we'll look at an example now. James says, okay, I know you're having some difficulty with that. Just don't see that kind of thing happening. Let's take an Old Testament character who prayed. He's a prophet, but he's a man. Elijah. James knew the story of Elijah. And I'm sure he wanted to model his prayer like Elijah did. And he says this, Elijah, he is a man with a nature like ours. Starts off with something really, really simple. He nails down this point like any good teacher does by bringing up an illustration. James has done that all throughout the epistle. Have you ever noticed that? And he brings up something that you can relate to. It's in verse 17. He's a normal guy. He said, yeah, but he's a prophet. He's a normal person. He has a nature like ours. 
But he did pray earnestly. You ever prayed earnestly? I bet you have. If you've been a Christian, I'm sure you've prayed earnestly. I don't know how many times you prayed earnestly, but you prayed earnestly somewhere along the line. You prayed earnestly enough when Christ brought you to Him. You saw His will that He wanted you to be with Him. You prayed and you confessed your sins earnestly. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. About the only time I have ever heard of such a thing. And it didn't. It didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years. Now, I think this is an interesting illustration. The Jews, and that's really who James is writing to, the Jewish Christians that were spread out all over the known world at that time, they knew Elijah. And he is mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. I think he made an impact on the New Testament writers, didn't he? 30 times throughout. So he's not some obscure prophet. He was a man subject to like passions. Same kind of passions. He was a man just as we are. He prayed earnestly. God heard his prayer. He prayed earnestly again. God heard his prayer. And he says, we are like Elijah in our day in the year 2016. In our time and in our need and in our necessity. No different. Now that word, a nature like ours, he's a man with a nature like ours, homeopathos. Homeo, you might be familiar with, it means to be the same or like. You know, you've heard of homosexuality, same sex, not identifying that as a good thing, but that word is used in there, that, that comes from the Greek. Here is homeopathos. Pathos, dealing with feelings, dealing with emotions. Pathos. Just a man like us. He suffered like we have suffered. He knew hunger like we know hunger. By about noon today, you know you're going to start getting hungry. Well, he got hungry. Uh, let's look at 1 Kings 17.11. Now, we're going to be coming back and we're going to be operating out of Kings today. 1 Kings 17.18. Uh, 1 Kings 17.11 says, as she was going to get it, he called her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. He went to Zarephath. There was a widow there. Everybody's running out of food. Why? Well, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. Now he's hungry. And he's had to leave Brook Cherith because it dried up like everything else. That means your food sources dry up too. Animals die. Plants die. It gets so dry there's nothing. We've seen one year where it's been dry. Maybe a second year, but at least there's been some kind of rain. We're talking no rain during that time. Think how terrible it was. And this is her last, you know, she's getting down to the bottom. Nothing left. And he says, give me a piece of bread. I don't know if you know the story on that or not. We could get into that. But we see, he's, he's a person. He's hungry. He, he's thirsty. Look in First Kings 19. 
drink. There was Ahab, and then there was Jezebel. The story has gotten out what we're going to be dealing with today. The story about what happened at the sacrifice time. How the prophets, false prophets, were all killed. Oh, that's really going to uh, ring a bell with Jezebel. And, of course, uh, Elijah, who was such a man of God, earlier, in verse 3, and he was afraid, rose and ran for his life. Elijah, he's a man like us. He's hungry. He's afraid. Look in uh, 1 Kings 19. Before the Lord, and the Lord was passing by, and the mountains are breaking in pieces, and the rocks for the Lord. There was a wind, then there was an earthquake, then there was a fire, sound of gentle blowing. And in verse 14, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, stood up to the whole nation beat all the false prophets, showed them, look at the power that God has. He was zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's depressed. So, he's a man like us. You ever had those kind of feelings? Doesn't seem like anything's going our way. Yeah. <laughs> we know that, don't we? He was human. He was human just like us. What an illustration. You can say, but I can't do that. I'm not a prophet. I'm not living in that time that he was. I can't I can't pray that God would shut up the heavens and not give us rain for three and a half years. I couldn't pray that. I can't even pray that God would open the windows and the glory of heaven would just pour out all of its blessings. I can't do that. That's not kind of an illustration that's practical for me. Well, why, James, are you saying this? James is pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I think he's legitimate. God let him write a book. Holy Spirit's writing this really through him. This is God's Word. He says Elijah was a man, just as we are. Homeopaths like feelings. So get get that in mind. You can't say, yeah, but that's him and this is little me. This is what James is impressing upon. He prayed earnestly. Literally, it means he prayed with prayer. You have the word pray. Same word in, in the Greek. Prayer, pray, prayer. Same thing. He prayed and he's praying. Prayed earnestly. Look in Genesis 32, verse 24. Genesis 32:24. Let's get a little example of earnest prayer throughout the Bible. This is dealing with Jacob here. Jacob was left alone 
and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This is real. Um, a man and then another man. Uh, who do you think that other man is? Hmm. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. This man did to Jacob. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's Jacob. He prevailed. Well, you see what happened to him. The socket of his thigh was dislocated. He's talking to the pre-incarnate Christ here who did a little number on his leg there, didn't he? For the rest of his life, he would remember that. But he wrestled with God. First Samuel chapter 1. Matter of fact, did you know what the name... And Jacob is also called who? He will be named Israel. And Israel means what? To persist. To persist with God. To persist with God. To wrestle with God. You know what his other name was? Jacob. Deceiver. You see why God wanted to change his name? The twelve tribes are going to come from him. You don't want to be known as deceivers. Although, it turned out that much of them were. That was his nature. He was a deceiver, but he prevailed with God. He wrestled with God. That's pretty prevailing type prayer there, isn't it? Go to Ezra chapter 9. Oh, okay, good. Let's do that one. You ladies really want to do that one. There's a reason why you want to do that, don't you? Because it's about a lady. Hannah. Sorry about that. 1 Samuel 1, verse 9. You guys know about Hannah, right? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. She, she's been wanting a child. God hasn't given her one. She's waited and waited. She's prayed and prayed. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. She meant what she prayed and she really prayed. She persisted. I think she prayed earnestly, don't you? And she said, God... I will give him back to you. And there's a Nazarite vow. Hannah. Who is the baby boy she winds up having? Samuel. Who wrote the book for Samuel. Wow. That's pretty powerful prayer. We can go to Ezra. A book before Nehemiah. And we are doing Nehemiah on Tuesday nights. There's a prayer in there. I'm not going to touch Nehemiah today because we'll do it Tuesday. Just quite a prayer. Ezra 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. It's a evening offering. Fell on his knees, stretched my hands to the Lord my God. I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed 
and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves. Yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. You get the picture of what was going on there. Babylon had conquered that nation. Everything had been burnt down, destroyed. People go back to that land. There is nothing there. It's a despicable looking place. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all, that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us an escaped remnant. Sound familiar? As this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant or any who escape? O Lord, God of Israel, You are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before You in our guilt, for no one can stand before You because of this. He realizes where he's at. He identifies with the nation, even though he didn't do those things. The fathers did. He identifies with them. That's why they're at where they're at in that position. He confesses. But he knows the promise of God that they can be restored. But it starts with what? Confession. When we were dealing with uh, all through James and James 5, we dealt with confessing our sins, right? And that's where it starts. We see the holiness of God. We praise Him for that. But then we confess our sins. And so that's where prayer can be to being powerful when we start with that I'm going to move on ahead when it, when it takes things that are apparently impossible bring them to God lay them before God say Lord this is the case I know how impossible it is make it a matter of intercession a prayer the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man prevaileth much. So let's go to that example. We have the illustration of Elijah, this righteous man, a nature like ours, who prayed earnestly. We're going to turn to 1 Kings, and that's where we're going to
spend our time the rest of this morning. We're going to actually start in 1 Kings chapter 17, but we're only going to do, I think, probably one verse there, maybe. Some, something like that. First Kings seventeen. Verse one. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, This is the wicked king. He goes to speak to the wicked king. This is not going to be favorable. As the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's where the word of the Lord came to Elijah to go to the brook Cherith. God will provide for him there with the ravens, bring him the food. So he has food and water. For a while, it's not going to be any rain. God's going to take care of them there for uh, a little bit. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? Mm-hmm. Elijah loved his people. The people were wicked. The people were evil. Elijah loved God. Those people, he loves God. The people were so vile, so wicked, so evil, so depraved decadent, sunk in idolatry and wickedness, Elijah saw that the nation needed to be changed. They needed to be saved from the damage that they had done. Was there anything there that was repairable? God has to strike quickly, sharply, Deeply. God has to come in and do something. That's how severe it had gotten. That's why Elijah prays that it doesn't rain. You ever wondered why he would do that? If he's a righteous man and a powerful prayer prevails, what can happen? Well, God will stop the rain. But he knows God's promise, he knows what God says. That's why he does that and he knows how evil they were. In order that they would learn how powerful God is and the favor and the blessing that He can bring by His mercies, Elijah knelt down and prayed, Oh God, stop the rain. Don't let it rain. Let no dew fall for three and a half years. So that's... That's really the essence there of our First Kings 17 thought there. He says, no dew, no rain. It's by really the Word of God. Elijah tells the king that. Well, if you look in 17, 1 through 7, you understand that God heard that prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly. You know, in... First Kings, it doesn't say anything about the praying that it, uh, but what we find in James five seventeen, James is actually commenting on this story. But in the original story, it doesn't say three and a half years, does it? Did you ever notice that? James is drawing from Elijah, but at the same time, 
he, he knows that that's how long it was. I think that's kind of interesting there as he puts that forward. It's, it's a revelation that we're given details. James gives us details on what was happening at that time. It's the same writer God. <laughs> Over the course of how many years? Let's see. Let's say 700 B.C., 800 years uh, before Christ is Elijah's time. James, hundreds of years later, writes something that helps it, helps us understand. By the way, Jewish historians outside of Scripture, just in their history, in their writings, they said that there was a drought that lasted three and a half years. Now we hear that because it becomes, it's just old and something we're acquainted with. Yeah, three and a half years, okay, and we just throw it by the wayside. Because if you think if that happened to us, what if we had one summer where we didn't have a drop of rain? What's that? I would hope. Two, three, three and a half. I mean, that's something really serious. I mean, this this is real. But Jewish historians would write that down because that's an epic thing. I want you to think about this. There wasn't a drop of dew in the mornings. Nothing. The sun would rise up in the morning upon a land that was burnt and scorched. No plant life. Every stream became dried up. Every piece of vegetation. We really appreciate those kind of things, especially when spring comes around, don't we? The whole earth became a hot, scorched oven. Brook Cherith. Elijah had lived there for a while, shrank up, shriveled, parched, dried. It says that in First Kings seventeen seventeen. The whole earth, just as far as what Elijah knew about it, just dried up. It was dust. That's all it was. There was some dry times in Oklahoma in in the nineteen hundreds, back last century. <laughs> Not even really a hundred years ago. They call it uh, the dust bowl. That's really all there was. It's just dust. There's so much. I mean, they didn't have any rain and no grasses or anything. And it just dried up. Of course, there was a lot of dust that came through this way, I'm told, through Missouri and such. Pretty, pretty sad type of thing that was going on. Anyway, we, uh, we move on in this story. 17.7, it says, It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. In prayer, God answered, This was really God's will. That's how much in touch the prophet was with God. Same time, he's uh, he denounces King Ahab in Chapter 18, he has a passion of scorn and contempt for him. He looks upon the false prophets of Baal and he denounces them. He wars against idolatry that's among almost all the people. That's where he's at at his time. Now we're going to pick it up in chapter 18 of 1 Kings at verse 30. Oh, by the way, got to do 18.1. Because this will set it up. Here's the prayer. 
that Elijah has again. Oh, what's he going to do? What's he going to pray now? <laughs> now it happened after many days, not three and a half years, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. There's the promise. You know why? In just a bit, we'll see Elijah praying with absolute confidence because God makes a promise. This isn't a written promise, but it's God's word to Elijah. He said, go to Ahab. I'll send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, who hates true prophets, and says, now the famine was severe in Samaria. I guess. This is north of Jerusalem. It's the area where you have the ten tribes. That's that's what we're dealing with. That's where Elijah dealt with as far as his prophetical ministry. In in this section, verses thirty through thirty five of First Kings chapter eighteen, this is where the prayer develops. You have to have preparation for prayer. Okay, he's been told by God. You don't see Elijah praying that right now. He will when the time is right. Now we pick it up, verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water, pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. Precious water. I'm going to start a fire. You don't put water in What? And he said, Do it a second time. Just to make sure. They did it a second time. He said, Do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Just want to make sure that you guys realize how big of a deal this is. Well, I think it's interesting. Why do you suppose that Elijah called the people to come near? He says, come here. Come near to me. Come over here. Because what he's about to do, he's going to instruct them. He's going to teach them here. And I think there's something very doctrinally significant in this instructive time. It's important to faith. It's important to effectual prayer. The people had just witnessed the futile praying of the Baal priest. Do you remember what they did? They're out there trying to do whatever they can do to make something happen by their gods. Nothing happened all morning long into the afternoon. Nothing happened. 
Of course, Elijah standing there, going to be smiling, makes it even a little bit of a joke to him. So I guess your gods are out to the bathroom, huh? Not doing anything. This is all about preparation. He hasn't said the prayer yet, but he's preparing the people for prayer. Elijah wanted them to know that Yahweh is the true God. See, most people don't believe in the true God. Today, most people out there don't believe in the true God, do they? And especially certain commands that he has. and That's why they don't like him, so therefore he doesn't exist. He wants them to witness the power of prayer. They don't know it. Public prayer. Quite an encouragement, quite a blessing in this as he teaches it. And then he starts restoring an altar. Dealing with the altar. The point is that the Lord's altar of sacrifice represented the very means for access to Him. So we we have this altar. All the people came, told him to come there, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Then torn down, he repairs it. This speaks of some things. Um, one of the words used for offering a sacrifice in the Old Testament was quara. It means to come near, to approach, to draw near. Also, there's another Hebrew word, um, Allah. Not Allah the God, but to descend up. They would say that word when they descend to Jerusalem, for instance. Uh, to go up, to ascend, to a climb, to go to the altar. Altar is up. It's talking about access to God. The ascent of the smoke of the sacrifice went up to God, ascended up to God. It was through a sacrifice that they did Old Testament sacrifices and it satisfied God's holiness when they sacrificed. Only thing is, they had to sacrifice all the time. They had feasts, they had festivals. Every day they did the animal thing because it was constant and going. There wasn't one final sacrifice. This is this daily thing and anticipating the substitutionary death of the very Son of God. That was the teaching in behind all of those sacrifices. Those sacrifices never took away sin. Never did. The ones that took away their sin would be ahead of time, hundreds of years later, by Jesus' Son. This is just symbolic. It's a picture. And then repairing the Lord's altar. What's going on there? Well, it's dealing with repentance, confession. You cannot enter and have access to God without repentance and confession. James has already talked about that in chapter 5. And here we have the same kind of pattern. So people who do not talk about sin in their churches, right? They're not preparing their people for prayer because how can those people pray if they haven't entered into the presence of God confessing their sins? Because those churches don't believe in sin. And they don't believe in confessing the sin because it will offend people and people won't come to the church. We want to love them and not tell them about their sin because they'll feel better about themselves. Well, then they won't ever enter the access of God, will they? Hmm... The pattern is all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Oh, but they don't believe in the Old and the New Testament, really. Yes, we do. It's our authority, but it's so antiquated. Got a little low to go high. Got a little 
go go low to you go high. That's being humbled, isn't it? Humbled. God's altar, the way of access. When the people brought that animal, that was a humbling thing as the lamb's head, throat, would be cut and the head would go off. And the blood would spew out. Yeah, people don't like to talk about the blood today either, do they? Nothing but the blood of Jesus that takes away our sins. It's in, in this place is where there was a substitution. And that's another thing. I like to talk about the substitutionary penal atonement. The substitutionary penal atonement. The idolatrous system of Baal had been brought in. And for God to hear our prayer, we need to repair the altars to correct those things that are in our lives that hinder fellowship with God. We do bring that to Him because He is the one who takes them away. I'll forgive your sin. Restoration of the altar. What about the preparing of the sacrifice? This was all done for the purpose of how authentic that prayer was going to be. Not only didn't he didn't put any fire under the sacrifice, but he drenched it with water. So there could be no mistake. It's like Jesus whenever he was coming to Jerusalem and he was told that there was a man who was he was so close to had died. Lazarus. He's so close to him, he waits three days until he shows up. Why three days? That it would be no doubt that he died. The smell itself would be proof. And so, there's no mistake that this sacrifice was consumed. It was a work of the living God. That's what Elijah's doing. He's preparing them for the prayer that he's going to do, which they're not even going to hear. But there is something going on here. There's a, there's a public prayer, and there is the result out of it. As we look in 36, 18, now we proceed. We're going through 1 Kings 18 a little bit. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that's significant, Elijah the prophet came near said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, and he is praying here, this is the public prayer, but it's still not that prayer that James is mentioning, but it still yet is so related, isn't it? Speaking to God, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, or Jacob, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. Let it be known. Let them see this, God. And all that I am, your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Do you see where prayer is based on? The word of God. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, our God, remember this is God's aunt, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Consumed the burnt offering. This is our God, folks. Consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust. Licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He 
is God. Can you imagine people in our nation on high street saying that? They would probably haul you off and get you arrested. Can you imagine being in front of the Capitol? The Lord, He is God. Well, sometimes people do get away with that. And, and the news people come and try to show that only five or six people showed up. It turns out there's like 2,000 of them there. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. What are you going to do, Elijah? So they seized them. These are the people that were kind of ungodly. They prayed the prayer. Or they heard the prayer. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. That's radical. I know, it's Old Testament. But there had to be something done. The law says to do this. These are blasphemers. These are false prophets who endangered everybody in that nation. And so he does it. At that time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, it doesn't just mean it just happened. It was a product of the work of God in the very life of Elijah. Providential working. What happened here was doctrinally motivated. It was the work of God through the Word of God. It's a means. Just like prayer is a means. Elijah knew. He knew this will of God. It was a result of his personal faith in the very Word, the very promises. What desired to do... Uh, God desired to do uh, what, how God wanted to be glorified. And Elijah waited until this specific time of the day to do it. They just try to do their thing, car, call fire down from heaven and everything. Right? Or Elijah only can do that. But um, he waited till this time, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. What a testimony of the power of word here. The people. They're seeing that his life was ordered by God in God's Word. The time of his prayer, evening sacrifice, that's prescribed in the Old Testament. That's when you'd have it. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when that time is. That's when the time was to do this thing. The place of his prayer, it was near the altar. and That's where the, the bullock lay. These are symbolical acts that include Elijah's faith in God's truth. In his word. So he's acting according to what God had revealed in the Old Testament, dealing with sacrifices, the altar. He's just following that through. What can we learn from Elijah's actions on this? There's no access to God and no prayer heard apart from God's prescribed sacrifice and access to him. If he doesn't make a way, God doesn't make the way. The way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There cannot be any sacrifice that will be any good at all unless you come through this one sacrifice. Through this one way. This one person. So, Christians that are lining up with all the other religions of the world, and I say Christians with quotes because they don't believe Jesus because Jesus said that He was the way. 
So anybody who believes in Christianity and other religions, you know what? I say they are not Christians. You know, it's only Christ and Christ alone. You can say, yeah, but that'll make you, that'll, boy, you'd be uncomfortable in that kind of situation. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about Jesus when he was here or the apostles? Christianity is very narrow. He is the way, but he's provided the access, the way. It's through Christ and that sacrifice. What a shadow, what a type that's being set up here in this prayer. And that's been given in the Old Testament. With uh, They already had the temple and such, right? He has a passion of intercession. He prays God for blessings upon this burning land. What's his address here? How does he address God? In verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You know what he's doing here? He's starting off with Yahweh. He's the God. Yahweh is dealing with the covenants, His promises, the very nature of who God is. He's coming out with, I am. That's what Yahweh is. It means, I am. Book of John has I am statements. Seven of them. Seven or eight. How are you interpreting? I am. I am the true truth. I am the way. I am the life. I am the resurrection and life. I am the light of the world. I am. What does Elijah start with? O Lord. O Yahweh. O I am. The self-existent one who is eternal. He's going right on the character and the nature of who God is. Starts looking up at this holy, awesome God. The eternal, immutable, independent of anything God. All things are are impossible with us. But with God, things are possible. So he relies on I Am. He relies on the very law of God. What's the purpose and content of this prayer? Let it be known. There are four things here that people need to see. They needed to see it. People here today in this world need to see this. Number one, you are God in Israel. That thou art God in Israel. Thou, O Lord, you are God. Nothing else. Nobody else. That's found in verse 37 there, chapter 18. Oh, how people need to see that there is a true God. Seems so basic to start with us as Christians. Let me tell you, most people don't believe in our God. That's what he starts off with them. They weren't either. And then he says, that I am thy servant. I want them to see that I'm your servant. Not only was Yahweh real but that Elijah was real and a man, a servant, a slave of God. He's real. He served people, but he was not a people pleaser. You can see it in this story. He's a God pleaser and that they would see that he is a man of God and that he's real. That they would see the truth of God through him. Number three, what do they need to see? That he's God. That we are servants of God. That we do things 
according to His Word. You see that? I'm your servant and I have done all these things at your word. It's not my gig. This is God's. This is what He does. It's all His. I've done all these things at God's word. And that's how our lives have to be ordered. We have to be directed by the word of God. Every step that we take. People need to see that we are people of the book. We're directed by this. This is our authority. Anybody that doesn't want to uphold the book profess to be Christians and it's not an ultimate priority for their worship, they're false. It's a temple. That's what was going on during the time of Elijah. People had drifted. A lot of them said, oh yeah, I believe God. And they had their own prophets. They weren't going according to the Word of God. You see how quick it can slide Everything that we deal with, it must be directed by this. By this alone. And then number four. People need to see this. O Lord, O God, that You have turned their heart back again. It's God who can do that. It's not Elijah, but it is God who's doing that. You have turned their heart back again. That they could have proceeded deeper and deeper in the sin and judgment and the electing God, the God of sovereign grace comes in and He has His 7,000 that Elijah later on is concerned about. I'm the only one. God says, I have 7,000 more. They might have been these people right here that got converted. What about, what about His prayer? Well, there's two verses of prayer. Look at the brevity of it. Two verses, 63 words in the English language. Brief, clear, concise, right to the point. The Lord doesn't hear us for our many words. He hears us for what we know to be true. We confess to Him. Boom. Charles Spurgeon said, I don't make long, lengthy prayers whenever I see the Lord as I start the day. It's just like going into the bank. I do my business, and then I go out, and then I have to do my business. <laughs> he checks in with God, boom, and then goes about doing. Now I'm not saying don't be. We're to be praying always, but there's you know there's a time that we say, well, okay, this is my specific time prayer, prayer of time, and take it as long as you want. But look at how short this little prayer is here. Amazing. The results of his prayer. First of all, there are men and women who turn back to the Lord. It's what he was wanting. And Elijah said seize those prophets. The ones that they were they were following, now they go seize that. Seize the prophets. And I think what we see here is a repentance. We see a revival. We see a restoration. We see also people that were bold enough to defy Jezebel. They executed the Baal prophets. How dare them do that in front of the leaders the nation. Well, Jezebel wasn't there, but Ahab was. And look what he's been witnessing. A fervent prayer of a righteous move of the Holy Spirit of God that accomplished uh, a work. We have to refuse to be like the world. We don't want to go along with its ideas and patterns no matter how politically correct it is if it's against Scripture. We are to get involved 
with the gospel. Even the issues of our day, sometimes in our society, it calls for us to stand up to. Uh, we are to pray for our nation's leaders and yet make at the same time what righteousness is known to them. Take a stand to your job, people you're around. Be informed as from the Word of God and witnessing, giving answers, praying, writing email to our elected representatives. Go to them. Or in an area that can happen, but just a simple line. This means earnest prayer for our nation and its leaders. What would happen? It means taking a stand, doesn't it? Elijah's private prayer starts in verse 41 now. This is the one that James is really emphasizing. Eyes of faith. A little cloud. Just the start of something big. Elijah reacts. He has expectations because he already knows God has a will for this to happen. He believes in the Word of God. He doesn't hesitate. Sends his servant to go check on it. Tells him, first of all, I want you to go to Ahab. Give him a message. Here it is. Verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for as the sound of the roar of a heavy shower... It's going to rain again. Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, crouched down on the earth, and put his face between his knees. Elijah, go ahead and get on back to the palace. You're going to get caught in the rain. And it's going to be such a rain that uh, you're not going to be able to travel. You better get going. Ahab goes. He didn't stay around to pray with Elijah. And I think Elijah's expecting the ravines and everything to just be filled with water and have flash floods. You guys know what flash floods are? (laughs) I'm sure that's what's going to happen. Elijah's thinking here. And going to it appears Ahab just goes up eat drinks totally unappreciative of the grace of God I think he's hardened a picture of a hardening sensitive insensitivity rejecting the Lord the prophets of Baal had been slain before his very eyes God had performed a miracle through Elijah a prophet of the Lord at that time when that happened God was not in Ahab's thoughts. He just saw a miracle. It only came from God. He knew it. It's been very evident to everybody. Some people convert. doesn't mean a thing to this hardened man. Rain is coming. The famine will pass. Elijah knew the work wasn't done. God works through prayer. This is where the prayer is at. Here it is. Crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees. God send the rain. Send the rain. This other man, Ahab, he ignores God's revelation, has a hardening effect on the heart. That's what happens when God's truth comes. Even our hearts get hardened or they get softened and we seek God. One of the two ways. It'll even be more of a hardening if one doesn't answer that. What about the word Carmel here? Went to Carmel, Mount Carmel. Perhaps I think this is really significant. It's an analogy here, maybe. What's the meaning of the name of this mountain? Have you ever wondered? It's a Hebrew word, Carmel. 
It means a garden land. It means a place of fruitfulness, of fertility. That's what Mount Carmel is. It comes from karam, karam, to ten vines, or karim, a vineyard. It comes from that same word. Elijah went to the place of fruitfulness. The place of fruitfulness is our prayer life. That's where we go. You want to be fruitful? Prayer room. War room. What's his position here? Face between his knees. And say, that must be the magic potion right there. I haven't done that. I need to do that. Or maybe I need to spread myself out on the floor like that. And that's fine. It doesn't matter. The position is not something religiously. And if I do it that way, then God will answer. It's not formulas at all. But that was a way of concentration. It's, it's all of the heart. He's genuine. It's the genuineness of the heart. Elijah prayed in faith expectantly. Seven times he told the servant to return. Remember that? Seven times. Seven is a number of completion or perfection in Scripture. It's not a magical number. It just, here, this is teaching us what perseverance is. Seven times. You think, okay, three and a half years and one time, two times, servant, three times, four times, five, six, seven. Luke 18.1 says that all times men ought to pray and not to lose heart. Keep on doing it. The need is to keep going until we see evidence of what God's will is and His answer is. Elijah wasn't saying that he was going to quit after seven. But that was the number. Rain on the land. The drought was broken. Prayer of faith. This was the will of God. It was a prayer of faith by Elijah. The ultimate goal was the removal of the spiritual drought in Israel. And you say, yeah, but physically, yeah, but this is the reason why this all happened in the first place. It was designed to turn sinners from seeking life apart from God. And if this not had happened, none of those people would have been saved. This is the ends to where God was pointing. He had to use the means. The Word of God to Elijah. The prayer of Elijah. Boom! The answer. And Elijah knew, without a doubt, it was going to be answered. Because he knew it was God's will. Because that's what God said. (laughs) It's always going to work out that way. That's what we want to pray for when we know it's God's will. And if we don't know, you keep praying and you find out, I'm going to keep praying then we find out, oh, perhaps God wants me to shift this type of prayer here into this angle. And then, boom. Maybe What'd you say? Maybe forget it all together. <laughs> and let God do His thing. Yes. <laughs> Elijah received supernatural strength then to outrun Ahab. I love this, and we're going to close. I know, boy, I've gone over 12 o'clock, folks. Okay, we know the seven times, right? It came about some time, verse 44. Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down, now's the time, here it is. So that the heavy shower, and my word has heavy, it's not just a little shower, it's a heavy shower, and it... 
does not stop you <laughs> from you traveling. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. We've had those. Channel 13 says we have severe storm warnings out. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Ahab is in his chariot. He's in it. What's your favorite car? Ferrari. Ferrari. Okay, he's in his Ferrari, and Elijah's out there going, he's hot footing it, as J. Vernon McGee said. And he beat him there. <laughs> Ahab, how'd you get here? As he saw him across the finish line. <coughs> we have to close. I ask you this as we're closing. If prayer is so important, why do so many believers, myself included, are continually halted in the prayer that is so powerful? Satan schemes against us, number one. That's what I told you before. He hates praying Christians. And that's an oxymoron because Christians do pray. But he hates it. Number two, it's hard to pray and to keep praying. It takes discipline. And our spirits can sag when we don't get the answer. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I give up. If prayer is so important, why is it that they're halted? Prayer is a very important dimension in the life of every believer. God has made promises. The basis for Elijah's actions was the promise that God made to him in 18.1. He said, but why pray then? God's going to go ahead and do it anyway. God had said, the rain is coming. Matthew 32 warns the disciples against wrong priorities and being anxious over the details of life. You know, the flowers and all that. Someone on the mountain. He says, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. We don't always know what they are. The Holy Spirit is praying for us, but yet He still has us to pray. Why pray? God ordains the means to the end. Prayer is the way that He gets His will done. For some reason, He allows us and wants us to be a part of what He's doing. Number two, God draws us in prayer and conforms us to His will. And sometimes a drought like three and a half years will get people's attention. Well, He can bring on a whole bunch of things to get our attention that we haven't been thinking about. And He can bring and use those and we start praying. It just conforms us to His will. Because if if we're praying His will, you know what? 100% they will always be answered. Let's just close with that. And I'm going to close the whole thing here today. Be thinking of prayer in your life. Prayer in your family's life. Prayer dealing with church life. Be thinking of the war wall that we have. Something comes true that you've been praying God answers. I'm not even put that on the wall so other people can read it. I want to keep that challenge going because it's a pictorial way of showing that we're uniting together 
as a church. So, visit that room whenever you can. God is making an impact. And I'm telling you, it will be encouragement to all of us. It already is. There are quite a few lines that have been written in there. Just coming from your heart, what God is doing. That, at least that's one way that we get to unite. You know, Things are sh- short here. The time is so short. Two hours and five minutes. <laughs> have you ever noticed how quick it goes? You want to talk to people before they, you know, when they come in and, and then it's time to start and then the music is over and done with. It seems like three and four minutes and you know, 45 minutes and, and then boom. You know, and, and you don't even get to say hi to most of the people that you see. And we're just a small church. So it's a good way to relate to each other if nothing else. You may not even know who's writing. But I, I just keep putting that put forth because it seems like God just keeps pushing it to us that we need to take a step up and ascend to a better prayer life. The challenge. Elijah was a man like us. His prayers worked powerfully. In tune with God's will. God taught him. Father, thank You for this time and thank You for the example of Elijah that teaches us also how to pray. Trusting in You. Knowing Your Word. And praying accordingly. Praying the Scriptures. Thank You for this precious time that we've had this morning. It is a joy to spend with God's people. May the prayer that we are praying now and prayed all morning, may it truly come about. May we be able to take what we have here, live it out in our lives, and also be able to share it because it doesn't stop. It should just start as we go out to a lost world and make an impact on this pagan world who needs you because you're the only way, you're the only truth, you are the only life. Thank you for the access to the heavens. In the Son's name, Amen.